Welcome to Cato Audio for August 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Nadine Strawson warns against self-censorship. Fleming Rose discusses the intrinsic value of free speech. William Ruger argues for a restrained foreign policy. Federal Judge William Pryor talks about the brief history of protecting religious liberty. And Representative Blake Lukemeyer talks Dodd-Frank and Operation Chokepoint. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. The Brexit vote occurred, much to the wails of uh, media, both in the U.S. and in Great Britain. I'm talking now about what that really means with Emma Ashford, a research fellow at the Cato Institute, and Tom Clardy, managing editor of Cato Journal, and uh, notably for this conversation, former executive director of the Adam Smith Institute in London. So uh, to begin here, Theresa May, uh, former Home Secretary, now former Home Secretary, now uh, British Prime Minister, what do we know about her? Well, um, she's experienced. She's been in government for the last six years. She's been in frontline politics since the late 90s, a member of parliament since 1997. Um, what's interesting is that although she's held a whole range of roles up until this point, none of them have really focused on economics. So probably until a few weeks ago, we really didn't know where she stood on big economic questions. Now, she was a Remainer, so she, she voted for and campaigned for staying in the European Union. Uh, nevertheless, um, I think she's always been seen as one of the more Eurosceptic Remainers, um, and certainly she wasn't very vocal or very prominent during that campaign. Uh, a lot of people said she was um, really you know, staying on the sidelines uh, in order to further her political ambitions, which has turned out to be a smart move. Now. What do we know about her real positions? She's not on the free market side of the Conservative Party, that's for sure. Um, she would describe herself as a one-nation Tory, uh, someone who is probably more motivated by trying to heal social divisions in society, um, in her terms actually trying to make capitalism work for the least advantaged, um, than she is someone who's driven by a kind of ideological fervour. Um, so uh, despite being a female, despite being a Conservative Prime Minister, uh, she's not Margaret Thatcher. Um, I do think on on the other hand, there are some encouraging signs already emerging. All right. Now, I, I should back this conversation up just a little bit and note that, Emma, you were surprised that Brexit actually occurred. Relatively surprised. And a, a, if I am correct, a reluctant remainer. Yes, I was. Um, and, and actually, that's one of the things that I kind of like about Theresa May. I think if you go back and actually look at her speeches from particularly earlier this year, she was herself really a very reluctant pro-Remain campaigner. She basically gave several speeches in which she laid out sort of all the flaws with the European Union, the excessive regulation, the excessive control from Brussels, um, difficulties in negotiating on things like immigration and trade. And she laid out all those problems and then made a fairly coherent case for why it was probably on balance still better to remain in the European Union. So I'm actually quite encouraged to see that she is in the top job as we move into this transition because I think she brings both that perspective of she knows what the problems are and also she didn't really want it to happen so she can represent the, the sizable segment of the population that voted against leaving. Now, you're Scottish. I am. Scotland voted largely to remain what do you what do you take from that vote and what do you suspect uh, may be next steps for yeah. Scotland 
It was fairly overwhelming, actually. It was more than 60% of Scots voted to remain, um, which is contrasts quite strongly with the vote in England. Um, and I think people in Scotland... Um, slightly closer to European countries, um, wanted to remain in the European Union. In the independence referendum a couple of years ago, one of the big issues that came up was, would Scotland be able to remain in the European Union? So I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that a lot of Scottish people have just over the last few years put more thought into their relationship with the European Union. Um, obviously, moving forward, one of the biggest issues is going to be whether Brexit itself might precipitate another independence referendum, whether the government in Westminster would allow that to happen, um, and if so, whether it might precipitate the breakup of the United Kingdom, and that would be a, a much greater problem. It, it's interesting to note in that regard that um, reports are the first thing Theresa May is doing as Prime Minister, having assembled her cabinet, is flying to Scotland um, to give a speech there. And I think to try and put this maintenance of the union between England and Scotland front and centre in her government, uh, when she was standing outside Downing Street before taking up the position, um, she pointed out that the full name of the Conservative Party is actually the Conservative and Unionist Party. Um, and, and that tends to get forgotten because there's only one Conservative MP from north of the border. Uh, England's uh, Tory support is mostly English. Um, it's mostly outside the big urban centres. I think that she will try and focus on that. I, I think it's unlikely that the government is going to want to allow a second referendum in Scotland. I'm actually not convinced that the Scottish National Party will want one themselves just yet. Um, I think that it would be dangerous for them to have the referendum now when they don't really know what the outcome of Brexit is going to be, um, when oil revenues in Scotland are, are still very depressed. And that was a big part of the economic case for independence, that Scotland would be able to take control of its oil revenues and prosper that way. Um, so it's certainly uh, an issue on the horizon, though. Emma, to you, uh, you you were a reluctant remainer, and you said that Theresa May was also. What were your primary concerns? What did your uh, remain position sort of hinge upon when it comes to relations with the rest of the world? So like a lot of things, I tend to look at this much more through a foreign policy and defense lens. And when you look at the Brexit issues less from the point of view of, of trade and movement of people and more from the point of view of defense, um, the issues really start to come down on the side of remaining in the European Union. Um, so there are security concerns. In addition to, we're talking about maybe the breakup of the United Kingdom, that would be bad for not just the UK in general, it would also be bad for American foreign policy in the long run. Britain has been America's most sort of stalwart partner on foreign policy over the years. Um, and then there are other security issues. There's Gibraltar. Within a couple of hours of the vote, the Spanish government reclaimed Gibraltar. Not that they're probably going to be able to do anything about that, but that's a territorial dispute that the EU had largely resolved. Um, the same with, and this is a much bigger problem, Northern Ireland. Um, Sinn Féin has made noises about some kind of referendum about unification with the Republic of Ireland. Um, and one of the things that made the peace process there really work for the last couple of decades is the fact that there were basically open borders, free movement of people and goods between Ireland and Northern Ireland. If that goes away as a result of Brexit, we might see some security issues reemerge in Northern Ireland. And um, those, are, those are very definitely real concerns. Um, I do think, on the other hand, it's important to keep them in context, because if you look at the, the situation between Britain and Ireland, um, that free movement, um, it, it long predates 
European Union membership. And I don't think it ought to go away just because Britain leaves the European Union. Um, I think when it comes to defence and security as well, um, a lot of that stuff happens at an intergovernmental level rather than through the institutions of the European Union. So while it, certainly it would be the case if Britain leaving the European Union was a sign that uh, we were going to turn our backs on the world um, to really withdraw from international affairs, um, I think the points you're making would be very valid. Um, I think at the same time, there's a good chance, actually, I think an overwhelming likelihood that Britain will continue to be at least as engaged, if not more engaged, in global affairs. Um, and that might circumvent some of the issues that you're raising. I think the point that we really have to make about this and about pretty much everything else in this debate is we just don't know that much yet. We don't know how this is going to develop. We don't know what Britain's exit from the European Union or relationship with the European Union afterwards is going to look like. And a lot of these problems will vary widely depending on what that looks like. For those uh, listening, I've talked with Tom Clardy a couple of times about uh, Brexit for the Cato Daily Podcast, and we recently did a Cato Connects program on the subject of Brexit and some of the, uh, I suppose, more front burner concerns regarding trade and immigration there. We'll talk about those a little bit now, but uh, just if you want some of the background uh, from our perspective, we uh, have that available on our website. So uh, Theresa May, the new British PM, has made some of her cabinet appointments. And that was something, Tom, that you, when you and I talked about this most recently, you said, look for cabinet appointments for the direction of the uh, the government. Uh, so what what are the appointments? Amber Rudd as Home Secretary, what does that mean? That one I'm not so sure about. Amber Rudd is not someone I know a huge amount about her background. Um, home secretaries, I think by the nature of the job, they tend to be a little bit authoritarian because they're doing policing, they're doing law and order, they're doing security and migration. Um, now, one of the big challenges for a new home secretary um, will be trying to come up with what will Britain's immigration policy look like uh, in the future. Um, because I think something that the government is talking about already is that while they want continued access to the European single market, both in goods and services, um, they also they, they don't want to put that necessarily ahead of having more control over Britain's borders. So that's going to be a very tricky issue for her to deal with. And, that, and that's in part because the European common market implies a certain level of, of acceptance of other rules regarding migration. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a fundamental thing, the free movement of people. It goes along with the free movement of goods and services and capital, um, that if you're part of the European Union, um, anyone from any other European Union member state can come and live and work in your country by right, and you have the, the same right to go there. Now, that, I think, it, the change is probably not going to be as dramatic as some people are expecting. I think that <laughs> people on the Leave side perhaps got a little bit carried away during the campaign, let their rhetoric run away with them. I think when, when it all comes out in the wash, we'll have possibly a slightly more restrictive uh, immigration policy, maybe one which is more focused on employment and on high, high levels of skills, um, but not one which will be enormously restrictive or that will really clamp down on the numbers coming into the country. And, and clearly, I think that that would be a good thing. Yeah, and I think it's, again, important to note that um, some of the options that, uh, that the Leave campaign pointed to before the, the referendum and, and that people have pointed to since, things like the, the Norway option, joining the European Economic Association, or the Swiss option, which is more of a bilateral trade 
agreement. Um, in both cases, those countries have to abide by European Union rules on free movement of goods and of people. Now, the Swiss did have a referendum last year where the people want the government to crack down more on migration. They've not actually figured out how to do that right. under European Union rules yet. Um, but most of the options that Britain could negotiate to stay part of the single market probably involve the continued movement of people. And that, that's worth stressing, I think, that uh, there are countries that are part of the European in common market, as you say, that abide by some rules, but are not EU members. Yeah. And so, th so that's sort of the then a sort of ready-made package of of uh, policies that they can yeah. m may be compelled to take or leave as a group. Right. I mean, so the, the European Economic Area or Norway option um, is would be the obvious fallback position for a country leaving the European Union. In fact, that status was created for countries which were in the process of joining the European Union. So it would sort of make sense to work in reverse as well. Um, I thought during the campaign, and, and a lot of my friends back home did as well, that that would be the most likely outcome. And, and what it would involve essentially is Britain still remaining a full part of the single market. So having the same four freedoms of movement for people, for capital, for services and goods that we have now, but at the same time being outside the European Union's political institutions, being outside the jurisdiction of the European Court of Justice, um, being outside the common agricultural policy, a huge agricultural subsidy program, uh, the common fisheries policy, which has, I think, wreaked havoc on uh, European fish stocks, and crucially outside the common external tariff, which would mean that you can negotiate trade agreements or, or simply trade freely of your own accord uh, with other countries around the world. So. EEA membership would be, I think, a, a definite step forward. Um, there are some drawbacks to it, but I think they're overstated. Um, at the same time, it has become clear fairly quickly that while uh, European heads of government, people like Angela Merkel, are saying uh, that the European Economic Area membership might be open to Britain, it would absolutely have to include the free movement of people. Meanwhile, the, the British government would be saying, on the other hand, well, we want the other freedoms. We want goods and services. We want access to that enormous market, but we have a red line. We have to bring in some more immigration control. So that trade-off is really going to be how I think these negotiations are going to proceed. Um, for Britain, it will be how much free movement, probably of services, probably very particularly of financial services, are they willing to give up to introduce more control on immigration? All right. So uh, to you, Emma, uh, your concerns regarding Brexit had to do with foreign policy uh, security concerns and things like that. Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson, how do you like the sound of that? Uh, that is a, a very interesting appointment. I think it's actually a fairly smart appointment um, from the point of view of Theresa May. And she has appointed some very senior people inside the, the Leave campaign to these positions like Foreign Secretary, like Secretary for Exiting the European Union or Trade. Um, where they're actually going to have to manage that process going forward. They're going to have to take responsibility for it if it looks like it's going badly. Um, and they're going to have to implement their vision for leaving the European Union. What I think is going to be really difficult for uh, those uh, Brexit champions is managing expectations. As Tom alluded to earlier, they got a little out of hand with their rhetoric and promised you know, an end to migration, that we wouldn't be sending any money to Brussels anymore. But in, in the most likely scenario that we 
join the European Economic Association um, or even in the Swiss model, we'd still end up sending a lot of money to Brussels. And we probably wouldn't be able to completely restrict the movement of people. So they're going to have to manage expectations and explain to the public why they're not meeting those promises that they made. What I think is really interesting about the appointment of Boris Johnson, and actually not just Boris, but also David Davis, who is the new Brexit secretary, who will be uh, you know, in charge of the, the detail of getting Britain out of the European Union over the next two to three years, Liam Fox, who will be the new uh, international trade secretary, a position which hasn't existed for a long time because Britain has been outsourcing its trade arrangements to the European Commission for decades. Um, all three of those people... Boris Johnson, Liam Fox, David Davis, very, very much on the free market wing of the party. Indeed, uh, if Cato were in London, I think you would see people like David Davis and Liam Fox hanging around at our events. Um, and, and, you know, I've already alluded to the fact that Theresa May, the new prime minister, certainly would not be seen as someone who's on the free market side of the party. Um, she's already made some noises uh, that hint in a, in, in a slightly worrying direction. Uh, she's talked a lot about industrial activism, about government taking a more active role in shaping the economy, uh, trying to make it work differently. Um, however, in those crucial positions, she's appointed really free market people. Um, and so I think that that's a sign that Britain is actually going to put trade very much front and centre. And so I know that people over, over here in the States have been saying a lot, you know, is this Brexit thing, is it like Trump? Um, and yes, there was an element of kicking the people in authority. There was an element of rebellion against the political class, and there was this whole kind of anti-elitist thing swept up in it. But one of the areas where it differs quite fundamentally is on trade. Um, the Leave campaign was always pro-trade, throughout the campaign, actually. Um, and I think that this is a sign that in government, it's going to be uh, interpreted in that way. All right. So what do we know about Chancellor of the Exchequer, Philip Hammond, and, and what, what precisely is that role? It's basically equivalent to the Treasury Secretary over here. Um, so I mean, taxes, spending, um, a lot of stuff to do with finance, that'll be within his purview. Uh, he was the Foreign Secretary until very recently when he moved to the Treasury. Um, he's widely regarded as being a, a safe pair of hands, someone who is very competent, um, very good at getting his job done. Um, <laughs> the British press call him box office Phil, um, the idea being that he's not terribly exciting. He's unlikely to give them any big front page stories. Um, and that it actually is exactly what you want in the guy in charge of your finances. Uh, he too actually is very much on the free market side of the, of the Conservative Party. Um, and, and what's going to happen actually with, with public spending and taxes in Britain is interesting because over the last six years, um, George Osborne as Chancellor of the Exchequer um, has presided over what's widely called an austerity program. Uh, I think to call it austerity is really to oversell it, um, but it has certainly been a program of fiscal consolidation. Um, spending has been kept under much stricter control than it was for many years leading up until the Conservative or the, the coalition government initially came in in 2010. Um, and he had uh, put into law a target that the British government would be running a budget surplus by the end of this parliament, by 2020. Um, that commitment is already being dropped, essentially. Um, so I think we may see a little more lax fiscal approach. But on the other hand, the fact that Philip Hammond is the person there, uh, and he was very much involved uh, pre-2010 in drawing up the Conservative economic plans for government, um, I think you can have I think, I suppose, some degree of faith that he's not going to suddenly open the spending taps wide and that the efforts that have been undertaken to bring government spending under control are going to continue. He's also instinctively a tax cutter. 
Um, and I think that, you know, this recognition that Britain might not be running a surplus by 2020, uh, it's as much about the fact that they want to cut taxes to stimulate the economy as it is about the fact that they want to spend more. I don't think they really want to spend a lot more. Leading up to Brexit, I, I don't think it was very well understood over here uh, in the United States what it actually was. But of course, it begins a process, a process that could take a couple of years uh, at, the, at the long end. Is that right? Perhaps at the short end, actually, um, because Brexit itself or the Brexit vote in the referendum uh, doesn't even start any process at all. Uh, technically, in the British Constitution, referendums are advisory. Um, also, although the government, I think, was politically bound, morally bound to obey the decision, um, it didn't have any immediate legal consequences. So um, Britain remains a member of the European Union, probably will remain a member of the European Union for some time. Um, but the, the process, very briefly, is under the terms of the European Lisbon Treaty. Um, something called Article 50 will be triggered, and that would start the clock uh, ticking on a two-year negotiation period. One of the more interesting things, I think, about the negotiation period is we have yet to decide or yet to know who those negotiations are going to take place between. Um, so one of Theresa May's first phone calls when she got into Downing Street was to Angela Merkel. It wasn't to Brussels. Um, and I think the UK can probably expect a, a better deal if they're able to negotiate with the leaders of individual European countries, the biggest countries in the European Union, rather than the Commission. The Commission itself has taken a number of extremely hostile um, actions, made some very hostile hostile statements ever since the Brexit referendum results uh, were announced. Members of the European Commission uh, said that there would be no discussions with their British counterparts before Article 50 was triggered. Uh, they met with Nicola Sturgeon, First Minister of Scotland. That was somewhat inappropriate in the immediate aftermath of the referendum and sort of implied that maybe Scotland would be welcomed into the European Union when that's not necessarily a a foregone conclusion. But I think the the negotiations will be held more between the countries than between the Commission and the UK government. The Lisbon Treaty itself specifies that it happens with the European Council, which is the government's. Yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of interesting to me that the reaction of the institutions, the political institutions of the European Union to the Brexit vote um, have shown more clearly than any amount of you know, words could, exactly what Britain was voting to leave um, and the kind of attitudes that Britain was voting to get away from. Um, you know, the European Union has long since ceased to be just a trade area or even a forum for intergovernmental cooperation. Um, it has for some time been taking on the trappings of a super state um, with its own interest groups, with its own political bodies, with people whose careers are really wrapped up in the continuation of this project and indeed in this project gathering more and more power and more and more authority over time. Um, and I think that's why you get this distinction between the reactions where the heads of national governments, I think they may not approve of the the Brexit decision. In most cases, they won't. Um, but they understand it. They understand where it's coming from. They see that there are similar uh, concerns and pressures in their own country. When, on the other hand, you're dealing with people who are the full-time uh, Brussels, the Eurocrats, uh, they have an entirely different perspective on it. They see this as some kind of deep betrayal. They, they can't conceive of why Britain would do such a terrible thing. And they want to punish Britain to make sure no one else uh, gets the same kind of ideas. 
the problem really is these differing conceptions of what the European Union is. You know, when it started as the European coal and steel community, it was about stopping France and Germany from fighting again. Then it morphed into this, uh, the European community, this free trade association. Um, and then the European Union, which was almost supposed to start to take steps towards being a super state, uh, a government that would actually control fiscal and monetary and even defense policy across the European Union. And I think where we've started to see backlash, um, not just among popular opinion, but from governments, is when we started to take that final step. Um, and it's worth noting that the foreign and defense pillar of the European Union is the one pillar that there's never really been any progress on. The linguistic shift over time, I think, has been interesting as well, from a European community with a common market uh, and with you know, mutual recognition of regulation uh, to a European Union with a single market and the idea that all regulation had to be harmonised at this supranational level. Um, and I don't think that, I mean, certainly when Britain voted on joining the European Economic, uh, economic Area in the 70s, they did not want or expect uh, or believe that Europe would pan out the way it did. Um, likewise, I, mean, I think even through the 1980s um, with the Thatcher government signing the Single European Act um, with John Major and the Maastricht Treaty in the early 90s, um, probably the signs were there, uh, written clearly in the treaties of the way that Europe was developing. But Britain never had that mindset. I think successive British governments misunderstood um, the direction of travel uh, and, and, and basically stored up a lot of problems for themselves in the long run, which have all come to a head with this referendum. All right. We're going to leave it there. Emma Ashford, Tom Clardy, thank you for uh, talking with me. And if you want to follow our continuous commentary on Brexit, it's all available at Cato.org. At the Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty Dinner, former ACLU head Nadine Strawson discussed the dangers of self-censorship. As she introduced Friedman Prize recipient Fleming Rose, Strawson argued that in order to render terrorism ineffective, Americans and people around the world must make the brave choice to not be terrorized. I am honored to present the Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty to someone who has been my hero ever since he burst upon the worldwide scene in 2005 with a bold challenge to the growing self-censorship in Denmark and Europe, and who has also continued to challenge the increasing self-censorship everywhere, including right here in the US. Too many politicians, journalists, and others refrain from candidly criticizing even the most discriminatory, repressive, and violent actions that too many Muslims carry out in the name of Islam, fearing charges of Islamophobia. In contrast, Fleming Rose continues to speak out, not only despite such false charges, but even more bravely, despite being subject to credible death threats. The same threats that have already been carried out through brutal murders of others who also have refused to stop analyzing, questioning, criticizing, and satirizing. Fleming Rose embodies the courage that is the cornerstone of our liberties, as eloquently described by another of my First Amendment heroes, 
Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis. As Brandeis declared, those who won our independence by revolution were not cowards. They believed liberty to be the secret of happiness and courage to be the secret of liberty. To quote the concluding phrase of our national anthem, we cannot remain the land of the free unless we remain the home of the brave. To be sure, it's certainly legitimate to shield oneself as well as one's employees and others from credible threats of violence. However, in too many cases, the reason for not saying something about the critically important topic of Islam is not fear of physical harm, but rather fear of offending some people's feelings. And yes, we should avoid hurting feelings, but not at the cost of stifling discussion on matters of public concern. Let me quote a recent Supreme Court case. You'll be happy to learn that eight, a full eight of the nine Supreme Court justices agreed with you. They upheld the right to engage in deeply offensive speech, which insulted many groups and individuals, including Catholics and the Pope. As the court declared, speech is powerful. It can stir people to action, move them to tears of both joy and sorrow, and as it did in this case, inflict great pain. But our nation has chosen to protect even hurtful speech on public issues to ensure we do not stifle public debate. In stark contrast with Fleming Rose's continuing speech, despite reasonable fe fear for his very life, we have seen countless counterexamples. Self-censorship of even the most germane and important expression about Islam and current controversies, even by institutions that should be leaders in standing up for free speech, such as Yale University Press and the New York Times. Yale Press cut from a book about the Danish cartoon controversy, not only those cartoons themselves, but also all other images of Muhammad, including the Gustave Doré image in Dante's Inferno. And the New York Times did not publish Charlie Hebdo's first post-massacre cover, featuring an image of Muhammad holding a Je suis Charlie sign and shedding a tear. These kinds of incidents perpetuate the tyranny of silence. And that's the title of Fleming Rose's inspiring book published by the Cato Institute. In contrast, Fleming Rose's outspoken advocacy is promoting not only individual liberty, but also equality and safety. The very concerns that are cited by those who practice and defend self-censorship but self-censorship actually undermines those goals. Equality is undermined by paternalistically presuming that all or most Muslims share certain attitudes and must be shielded from candid or controversial speech about Islam. And let us not forget who are the foremost victims of the violence and oppression that some Muslims carry out in the name of Islam, namely other Muslims. 
Moreover, self-censorship by non-Muslims hardly helps the many Muslims who welcome discussion and reform of their faith. Likewise, when it comes to safety, for that goal as well, succumbing to censorial pressure does more harm than good. Many arguments for free speech are utilitarian in nature, but the utilitarian argument for free speech hinges upon the social benefit of the speech in question. Fleming Rose, the 2016 recipient of the Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty, rejects the utilitarian argument. He argued that free speech is an end and not a means. I want to ponder a question. What is the best possible and most sustainable defense of free speech across cultures and history. More specifically in this context, I want to challenge what is probably the most popular metaphor used to defend free speech in the United States, the marketplace of ideas. It was introduced by the legendary Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes in the fall of 1919 in a historic dissent in which Holmes broke with his previous decisions defending severe limita limitations on opinions and speech. Even with the help of the clear and present danger test that later paved the way for the best protection of speech anywhere in the world. In that dissent, Holmes said, and I quote, the ultimate good desired is, is better reached by free trade in ideas. The best test of truth is the power of the thought to get itself accepted in the competition of the market, and that truth is the only ground upon which their wishes safely can be carried out, end of quote. The same argument for free speech was made by Milton Friedman. The marketplace metaphor understands free speech as a mechanism to achieve a goal. It renders our defense of free speech problematic when the goal, in this case truth-seeking, itself is challenged. The comparison between an ideas marketplace and the real marketplace suggests that the markets for ideas should be highly restricted. After all, existing, existing markets are rife with government interventions, restraints, regulations, and taxes. The marketplace metaphor implies far more exclusions from the domain of legitimate speech than perhaps even Holmes intended. And what about the argument from truth? Personally, I find truth-seeking an admirable and important goal, but many would beg to disagree. A government might decide that it is less important than equality or multiculturalism, which European hate speech laws assert. People can be convicted of hate speech even 
if they can prove that they are speaking the truth. If the only justification for free speech is that it helps society obtain the truth, then society may decide that it does not want to prioritize discovery of the truth. Most people are not truth seekers. They are affected by biases, and they do not necessarily want to find truth. Participation in public debate is rarely about open-minded pursuit of truth. Most people consume information according to their pre-existing preferences rather than information that challenges them. I think that we need to defend and value free speech, not so much because of what it achieves, but rather for what it is. Free speech is a right. It's a matter of individual agency, an element of individual autonomy that precedes government and the political and social order of society. It's about who we... It's about who we are as human beings. Speech is not just one among many human attributes. It is a defining attribute of the human. With the freedom to speak, an individual is free. Without that freedom, an individual is not free. Of course, the freedom to say something doesn't imply that it is always prudent to do so. The problem is, who is to decide what speech is responsible and what speech is irresponsible? Prudence would have counseled Abraham Lincoln to be polite about slaveholders, but instead he suggested they were racists and rapists. Lincoln stood for the proposition that the free are not free to choose on freedom. He rooted this an argument about what the founders really meant about equality. We easily get into trouble if our defense of free speech is premised on whether it contributes to truth-seeking or not, whether it serves democracy or not, whether it offends or not, whether it undermines the war effort or not, whether it is a threat to the common good or not. All these arguments are used every day to silence people all around the world. They are all instrumental or utilitarian arguments. They claim that we need free speech to achieve something else that is more important than free speech. If our speech contradicts these goals of higher value, that is democracy, theocracy, communism, dignity understood as the right not to be offended, the historical truth, religious sensibilities, the need to eradicate hate, and so on and so forth, then it is perfectly okay to criminalize that kind of speech. This is the fundamental nature of the position, I am in favor of free speech, but. Thus, we need a non-instrumental 
or non-utilitarian argument for free speech. Freedom of speech is a good in and of itself. It has intrinsic value. Common Sense in Foreign Policy begins with Common Sense by Thomas Paine, that according to William Ruger of the Charles Koch Institute, at a Cato conference on restraint in foreign policy, Ruger argued that protecting American security means protecting American commerce with other countries. Now, a lot of people would turn to Washington, Hamilton, Adams, or Jefferson first to kind of flesh out the founders' views. I really think we have to stop and talk about Thomas Paine. Paine was important really for laying the major kind of foundations of even what Washington and others talked about. And, and sometimes he's forgotten. You know, historian um, Felix Gilbert, he goes so far as to conclude that for a long time, every utterance on foreign policy starts from Paine's words and echoes his thoughts. And he conveyed a, a, a sense, uh, a kind of strain of British thinking about Britain's own relationship with the continent. He stressed that and then applied it to the difference between the new world and the old world. So what does he say in common sense? Um, he says that essentially there's not, quote, a single advantage derived from connection with Britain. And it wasn't just connection with Britain that worried him. It was also any political connection whatsoever to the old world. He said, as Europe is our market for trade, we ought to form no partial connection with any part of it. It is the true interest of America to steer clear of European contentions, which she never can do, while by her dependence on Britain, she is made the make weight in the scale of British politics. Another key element of Paine's view was the importance of that geographic advantage that the United States had and the sanctuary that distance allowed. So he talked a lot about that distance, about how far the United States was from Europe. Um, you, you hear him talking about uh, kind of planets and satellites, which really showed that kind of sense of distance you had between the America he hoped for and that old world. But this notion of a sanctuary is important too, because it touches upon some of those notions you see in John Winthrop about a kind of city upon a hill. So he talked about how the Americas, we could prepare in time an asylum for mankind, right? Something separated from the old world corruption that you had seen with practicing of power politics between these monarchies. Now, again, like good classical liberals uh, around him, Paine also stressed the importance of trade, not just for prosperity, but for America's security. So he noted, he said, our plan is commerce, and that well attended to will secure us the peace and friendship of all Europe, because it is the interest of all Europe to have America a free port. Her trade will always be a protection, and her barrenness of gold and silver secure her from invaders. Now, Paine sets this up in 1776. Uh, and the United States, at that point, as we all know, uh, is thrust into this great conflagration with the old mother country. And so, as the United States is, is trying, or sorry, the incipient United States, uh, future United States, is really trying to establish itself as an independent country, uh, it faces these exigencies of warfare, and it really wants to stay, the founders really wanted to stay disconnected, 
right? They had subscribed to that to Payne's conception, but they found it impossible in the short run. So they did conclude an alliance with France, as we all know, and France was critical to U.S. success in the Revolutionary War. But they soon, as they, as they achieved their independence, they soon faced a problem inherent in such a relationship, which is what do you do when your interests and your allies diverge? And so there was a huge debate at the beginning of our country's history around what to do now. And as you know, ultimately through the proclamation of neutrality and then with the farewell address, the United States essentially breaks the treaty with France. It's not officially uh, dissolved until 1800, but they break it unilaterally. Uh, which shows you that states don't have permanent friends, they have permanent interests. And the founders were hyper-realist when it came to that. So there's this big debate in Washington's first administration around that. It helps set up uh, the first party system in America, where parties come from, despite uh, them not really being mentioned uh, earlier in like the Federalist Papers, where they talk just about factions. And uh, what happens is that you have this debate, and Washington is trying to cool this debate. And he gives this farewell address, and he tries to lay out what America's approach to the world should be and, and to kind of heal some of those wounds in his own administration. And so he counseled the future Americans to beware emotional and political ties with foreign powers. So he talked about the problem of excessive partiality for any one nation and excessive dislike of any other. Um, he talked about how you have to have a kind of great rule of your, of your administration or of your, of your foreign policy. It has to be the North Star. He said, the great rule of conduct for us in regards to foreign nations is in extending our commercial, relation, in extending our commercial relations to have with them as little political connection as possible. Okay? And he worried that it would be folly in one nation to look for disinterested favors for, for another that it must pay with a portion of, in, of its independence for whatever it may accept under that character. So again, a deep concern about political connection. And he asked us, like, why would you actually want to quit these advantages that we had? And that's really doubled down upon by John Quincy Adams later. And he says, really, our true policy is to steer clear of permanent alliances with any portion of the foreign world. Now, I think it's important. Uh, it, it's, we can't really overstate the importance of the farewell address. Um, the way I'd like to think of it, or think we can think of it today, is if you think about Social Security being the third rail of American politics, it's often called that, this political connection and going overseas and fighting in foreign wars was really the third rail of 19th century American politics. Politicians after this hearken back to Washington's farewell address consistently and talk about our great rule. They talk about our traditional approach. Um, and so it's kind of amazing how few calls there are for the United States to go beyond the old world. That waits till the 1880s, 1890s. Now, Adams and Jefferson both follow Washington's advice. Uh, Jefferson, of course, being a great uh, turner of phrases, talks about uh, peace, commerce, and friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none, and he, and he kind of walked the walk on that. But then you have about uh, you know, 20 years later, you have a threat of the United States to get involved in the Greek independence movement. And John Quincy Adams quickly shuts that down with his famous address that really kind of um, uh, hardens Washington's approach to the world. And again, after this, you really have a lot less of this kind of struggle about what the United States should do for the cause of liberty ab abroad. Um, and what Quincy Adams says, he says, and I'll, I'll quote directly because it's such, so beautiful. He says, 
Wherever the standard of freedom and independence has been or shall be unfurled, there will her heart, her benedictions, and her prayers be. But she goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. She is the well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all. She is the champion and vindicator only of her own. Right? So that the United States should only fight for its national interests, narrowly defined, and to do otherwise would jeopardize our interests and our values. As it is with many liberties, the right to be let alone is at the core of religious liberty. At a Cato Institute conference on the subject, William Pryor, circuit judge at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, discussed the American value of non-interference in affairs of faith. Our legal tradition of protecting religious liberty has respected a right summed up in a phrase familiar to libertarians, the right to be let alone. Louis Brandeis and his law partner, Samuel Warren, first used that phrase in 1890 in their seminal article in the Harvard Law Review entitled, The Right to Privacy. That article was about the common law of torts. But 38 years later, in his famous dissenting opinion in Olmsted versus the United States, Justice Brandeis argued that the Constitution protected that right too. He wrote, the makers of our Constitution undertook to secure conditions favorable to the pursuit of happiness. They recognized the significance of man's spiritual nature, of his feelings, and of his intellect. They knew that only a part of the pain, pleasure, and satisfactions of life are to be found in material things. They sought to protect Americans in their beliefs, their emotions, and their sensations. They conferred, as against the government, the right to be let alone, the most comprehensive of rights and the right most valued by civilized men. Take note that even though he was writing about the Fourth and Fifth Amendments, Justice Brandeis mentioned man's spiritual nature and his beliefs as part of the right to be let alone. He recognized that the right to be let alone informs many areas of law, from the common law of torts to constitutional law. That principle also informs our protection of religious liberty, whether as part of the minimum guarantees of the Constitution or as part of our tradition of legislative accommodation. Both James Madison and Thomas Jefferson wrote about religious liberty in terms that could be equated with the right to be let alone. Madison wrote, in the first point of his memorial and remonstrance against religious assessments in 1785, that the religion then of every man must be left to the conviction and conscience of every man, and it is the right of every man to exercise it as these may dictate. Madison understood religious beliefs as a species of property and wrote that, quote, conscience is the most sacred of all property. Jefferson wrote in a bill for, uh, for establishing religious freedom that the opinions of men are not the object of civil government nor under its jurisdiction. Our country has provided three kinds of protection for religious liberty that illustrate our tradition of respecting the right of religious people to be let alone. The first concerns religious worship. 
The second involves the institutional liberty of religious communities. And the third involves not compelling religious people to violate their sacred beliefs when they pose no threat to others. The founding generation provided robust protections for religious worship. Section two of the Delaware Declaration of Rights in 1776, for example, provided that all men have a natural and unalienable right to worship Almighty God according to the dictates of their own consciences and understandings and that no man ought or of right can be compelled to attend any religious worship or maintain any ministry contrary to or against his own free will and consent, and that no authority can or ought to be vested in or assumed by any power whatever that shall in any case interfere with or in any matter control the right of conscience and the free exercise of religious worship. The Pennsylvania Declaration of Rights in 1776 had nearly identical language about religious worship. The Massachusetts Constitution of 1780 provided, and no subject shall be hurt, molested, or restrained in his person, liberty, or estate for worshiping God in the manner and season most agreeable to the dictates of his own conscience or for his religious profession or sentiments, provided he doth not disturb the public peace or obstruct others in their religious worship. And the Virginia Act for Establishing Religious Freedom in 1786 declared that no man shall be compelled to frequent or support any religious worship, place, or ministry whatsoever, nor shall be enforced, restrained, molested, or burdened in his body or goods, nor shall otherwise suffer on account of his religious opinions or belief, but that all men shall be free to profess and by argument to maintain their opinion in matters of religion, and that the same shall in no wise diminish, enlarge, or affect their civil capacities. The consumer impacts of the Dodd-Frank financial regulation are oft studied, but not particularly well understood. At the Cato Institute's Summit on Financial Regulation held in Chicago in June, Republican Representative Blaine Lukemeyer of Missouri discussed the problems built into Dodd-Frank and the galling effects of so-called Operation Choke Point. Let me just give you a few quick examples of some of the, the harm that has been done by Dodd-Frank. Before Dodd-Frank became law, 75% of the banks offered free checking. By 2015, 37% of the banks now offer free checking. Dodd-Frank regulations fueled a 21% surge in checking fees, and the mandatory minimum account balance needed to qualify for free checking has also increased. There are 15% fewer credit card accounts since 2008, and on average, they cost 200 basis points more. According to the Federal Reserve, when fully phased in, one-third of black and Hispanic mortgage borrowers will be hurt by Dodd-Frank's qualified mortgage rule based solely on its rigid debt-to-income ratio. And one of every five borrowers who borrowed to buy a home in 2010 will not meet the rule's underwriting requirements. Many community banks have suggested that QM will come to stand for quitting mortgages. 73% of community banks report regulatory burdens are preventing them from making more residential community loans. Small businesses are also being impacted. Their costs have risen by 10%. In my home state of Missouri, there are 44 banks at the end of 2015 
that are $50 million or less. Those are small guys, but they're a little bit of community banks. They help lots of people. 26 of them lost money last year. 26 out of 44. Why? The economy wasn't that bad in our state. It's this regulatory burden that is continuing to increase their costs. That's 26 banks that are on the chopping block, ready to either go out of business or be merged. And when that happens, their communities are going to suffer. And Chairman Henschling is going to be making a big speech on this uh, tomorrow in New York. And one of his comments is going to be, central planning of our financial sector has not created jobs. It has killed them. It has not limited risk. It has created more. It has not encouraged economic growth. It has shackled it. It is time to allow the power of the market to return us back to a prosperous America. Uh, with regards to Operation Choke Point, uh, this is an amazing situation that I would never have believed would occur in this country from the standpoint that uh, Operation Choke Point is basically uh, an FDIC DOJ-led initiative that cuts off legally operating licensed businesses from the financial services they need to survive. And the regulators do this through supervisory pressure and in some cases blatant extortion. As a former examiner, I can tell you how they do this, and as a result, we put together a bill. Um, but these decisions aren't based on risk or illegal activity, but they're based on whether or not the bureaucracy likes or does not like a business model. The House Oversight Committee has collected emails and memos proving this to be the case. The underlying problem and the problem of de-risking seen throughout the banking sector is significant. Think about what this means. The federal government can intimidate banks into dropping entire sectors of the economy as customers, not based on risk or evidence of wrongdoing, but purely on personal or political motivations. Some say we have a shadow banking system. I would argue we have a shadow regulatory system. Earlier this year, I introduced the Financial Institution Customer Protection Act, and it passed the House 250 to 169, and is in the Senate right now, and there's a companion bill actually been introduced over there as well to stop this nonsense. It will provide greater transparency and accountability and oversight of the federal regulators as well as DOJ. Like existing FDIC guidance, which actually they took from my bill, this bill dictates that federal banking regulators cannot suggest, request, or order a financial institution to terminate a banking relationship unless the regulator has material reason beyond reputational risk. Any such request or order to terminate must be made in writing and approved by a regional supervisor. On the DOJ front, my bill strikes the word affecting in FIREA, which is a banking rule, uh, law, and replaces it with by or against. This simple change will help to ensure that broad interpretations of the law are limited and the original intent of the statute, helping to penalize fraud against or by financial institutions, is restored. We must continue to be creative and vigilant in the way we fight Operation Choke Point. Rest assured, I will continue to be rigorous in my oversight and, and work on this issue. You know, as the IRS and their, their treatment of conservative organizations is in the news again the last couple of days, and quite frankly, I believe this issue is even more detrimental to us as citizens than that from the standpoint that just delays the approval of 501c3 conservative organizations versus this, where you actually stop people from having access to banking services, kill their ability to make a, a living, throw people out of, out of work. Why? And, the, and it's all personal and politically motivated. Um, I think we can do better. While the world today is safer than ever for Americans, it is also far more complicated. With unclear alliances and domestic politics complicating U.S. foreign policy, 
In a new white paper, Our Foreign Policy Choices, Rethinking America's Global Role, Cato Institute scholars present realistic responses to top policy challenges, including those involving China, ISIS, Korea, Russia, energy security, terrorism, drone warfare, and more, all underscoring how our global influence is greatest when spread by peaceful rather than military means. Download your copy of Our Foreign Policy Choices today at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.